This is the Urban Political, the podcast on urban theory, research, and activism. So, yes. welcome to the Urban Political podcast. Today is the fourteenth of March, twenty twenty-three, and my name is Hannah Hilbrand, and I am Markus Kipp. We welcome you to the first of a set of episodes entitled "The Urban Lives of Property." Thinking about appropriation, dispossession, and expropriation in theory and practice, and in this series, we advance conceptual and theoretical groundwork on the notion of property, shaping everyday urban lives and political discussion about the city. In this first episode, our guest is Nicholas Blomley. Um, Nick is a professor of geography at Simon Fraser University in Vancouver, Canada, and he is a widely recognized expert on property. Amongst his many contributions, I just want to mention two. First, his path-breaking book, Unsettling the City from 2004, and then also his new book, Territory, which came out this year with the Routledge and which we are also going to discuss today. We invited Nick Blomley to lay some groundwork as well as to discuss the geographical dimensions of property on urban life. So welcome, Nick. Thank you for joining us today. We are really glad that you came and you can be here. Thank you so much. It's uh, lovely lovely to be here and to, uh, to talk to you both. I would like to start on a more personal question, on a more personal load. Um, could you tell us a little bit about your biographical experience and insights that let you become interested in property, in space, and in land? Yeah, that's <laughs> that's an interesting question, um, and I'm sure there are many <clears throat> many dimensions to this. Um, I think maybe two are particularly important in terms of my my early life experiences and then my early career. So I grew up in rural England in a very, uh, very rural part of southern uh, England. Uh, and I think that was important to me in at least two ways. One, because um, I grew up like a lot of people in um, outside, let's say, the United States or Canada, uh, I grew up knowing something in a very practical and embodied sense about what it was to be a commoner, what it was to be able to move on the land and to access rights of way and, and so on in ways that when I speak to my students in Canada, they don't fully understand. So learning a little bit about, about uh, traditional forms of land access and traditional forms of ways of relating to the land, um, connecting to to the commons and to common property, I think was must have been fundamentally uh, important to me. But that was also a space um, in which land was highly concentrated and land ownership is highly concentrated in many parts of, of, uh, of England and Scotland and, and, and Europe and, and so on. Uh, so there was a... Um, effectively a lord of the manor who controlled most of the land, who owned most of the farmhouses, most of the kids I went to school with, their uh, their fathers were were um, farm laborers who basically worked for the lord. I mean, it was, it was kind of quasi-feudal uh, in that sense. And so I, that must have taught me something, um, at least indirectly, about the way in which power can become highly central, property can become highly centralized and become a means of uh, of control and domination. Um, ultimately, I ended up in Vancouver in Canada, and I think was also profoundly important to me. I arrived in 1989 when the politics of land, particularly in regards to colonialism, settler colonialism and indigenous land, was uh, undergoing a new change. Um, on the one hand, the official government of 
policy at the local level at the time was that there was no such thing as so-called native title, that indigenous people did not have a legal relationship to the land that counted. On the other hand, of course, there were indigenous people who for a hundred and more years had been arguing powerfully and passionately that yes, they did, and that that right had to be acknowledged. Um, and that led to some powerful protests and uh, um, forms of land defense and blockades and so on, which I um, try to make sense of and try to understand. So I think that taught me very, very immediately something about settler colonialism um, and at the same time something about the resistance to settler colonialism, which I think obviously endures and continues and has changed in some important uh, important ways. Um, and that opened up the space to recognize again that, that property is not just private property, nor is it just settler, settler property or state property, um, but that there are other ways of engaging with the land that can or might not be called property but for our purposes, speak to different epistemologies and ontologies of land and space. Uh, and I think that must have opened up a space uh, for me to uh, to reflect on uh, on uh, on land and property. I also got embroiled in anti-gentrification politics. Now I'm thinking about it um, as, a, a, as, as an activist and uh, as an academic and uh, thinking about gentrification politics in the inner city and bringing that to bear. Uh, bringing questions of property to bear on that, I think we're also instrumental. So that book, Unsettling the City, that you kindly mentioned, kind of came out of that uh, experience in, in some important ways. And could you also say a bit more about who inspired you most theoretically uh, on this journey? Uh, well, there's no one thread. I think there are multiple uh, multiple um, impetuses behind this. Um I mean, originally, I was originally my work was around law and geography in broad terms, um, and and property became a particular focus somewhat later. Um, so, in my early years, I was very much influenced by um, by Marxist theory, Marxist state theory, um, people like Polansis and Offer and so on, and of course, uh, you know, reading Marx, um, and that was fairly au fait in the, in the 1980s when I went to graduate school. Um, Uh, then I would also have been reading um, critical legal uh, theory, um, critical legal studies, um, which was, again, very influential. And that opened up law uh, and law in a much more interesting and somewhat problematic way, but nevertheless interesting and important at the same sense. Uh, but then also reading um, people like E.P. Thompson, um, uh, scholars of law, scholars influenced by Marx, um, Uh, as well as um, scholars who were beginning to um, push forward what we might now call the spatial turn in social theory. Um, so I was in Los Angeles in the late 1980s uh, when people like Ed Soja were very beginning to be very, very active. Uh, and so that made spatiality much more interesting in the same way that law was also being made interesting. So I think that Those kind of formative um, ideas, I think, must have must have shaped me. So let's think about the broader historical arc uh, of debate around property and um, how how do the changed material conditions uh, or relations over the last couple of decades uh, force us to think differently about property. And maybe we can think here about the rise of neoliberalism, the onset of digitalization, or changing international orders as evidenced in the uh, Ukraine war. 
has property changed materially or conceptually? That's a really challenging question. That's quite a big question, too. I mean, uh, <clears throat> there is, of course, a long durée, a, a long arc when it comes to thinking about, about property. Um, um, and that's also, and I think this is important, it has to be context-specific. I think we have to be careful when we talk about property because property means different things in different places. Um, this is a very simple but important geographic insight um, that I encounter whenever I, I move or, or travel or go speak to people in different parts of the world. That Property uh, and property in the city would mean something quite particular in Brazil as or South Africa or uh, Mumbai as compared to it might in Berlin, for example, uh, or or in London or or Vancouver. So, so I really need we need to be very cautious about you know ge generalities. Um, and I know that's not your question, but but we need to be very cautious about generalizing when it comes to thinking about property. If I just take the kind of anglophone um, set of debates around around property, um, or let's call them the um, European uh, or uh, Atlantic debates around around property. I think you could. What's clear is that in the nineteenth century, um, or maybe seventeenth, eighteenth, nineteenth century, there were some really very lively debates around property. In particular, of course, around private property. And one of the arguments that I've tried to make is that property is not just private property. The the fact that it has become framed in terms of private property speaks to the centrality, the ideological centrality of a certain way of thinking about property, which I've called the ownership model, borrowing from uh, other scholars, particularly Joe Singer. Um, <clears throat> but the the ascendancy of private property with the ascendancy of, of, of liberalism and capitalism, of course, triggered a whole series of very lively uh, and interesting debates, both critical and also, of course, uh, you know, following Locke and and, and others' attempts at at, at um, uh, bolstering uh, the um, the um, <clears throat> the centrality of private property as normal and uh, and uh, as productive and uh, uh, conducive to to the right social order and and so forth. But you know, if we think about people like Henry George or Proudhon or or Marx or Rousseau, you know, one can think about these very lively debates in the 19th century that sort of disappeared somehow in the 20th century um, to some to some extent. Um, so, so I think it's interesting to reflect on on the the way in which property became um, much more kind of normalized in the uh, in the 20th and perhaps the contemporary. Less so now, though. I think there's some interesting moments now, particularly in regards to. Um, uh, racial capitalism and uh you know the ascendancy of of indigenous um land organizing and so on that shifted the terrain in some ways but um uh has has uh, has property uh changed materially or conceptually in the past little while well, that's an interesting question i mean property on the one hand uh is actually really quite dynamic if one follows uh say property law it's quite clear that property is is technically capable of doing kind of really quite innovative and creative things. It can, it can, you know, create things like financialization or create the condominium, for example, as a particular legal form, um, uh, which allows for you know remarkable changes in urban land markets, um, mostly problematic changes in urban land markets. One might, one might argue, uh, but on the other hand, property has appears to be. Uh, immutable and and unchanging. It has this sort of um, 
uh, quality of 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 stability, which I think is is part of its story, part of its self narrative. Uh, <clears throat> this idea, of property as settlement, property as as creating quietness, as creating certainty and stability, uh, and so forth. And that's of course part of the uh, supposed attraction of property, particularly private property. Now we're getting to, uh, and the way in which private property is is uh, rolled out as a as a development model in in the global south as a means for securing land titling uh, in um um squatter settlements and, and so forth um so so on the one hand i think property has changed and is remarkably dynamic and continues of course to be contested in all sorts of striking and interesting ways you know on the other hand uh property appears to have this immutability and um uh, and continuity uh that that is that is appears unchanging you just mentioned uh, that property is not just private property and i think one of the things that interested me most in uh, your unsettling property book is really to unsettle property and make up the like open up the diversity of the notions of property that we actually have in front of us could you Please clarify your understanding of property. So what is property um, for you? How does your understanding of property differentiate itself from what you call the ownership model of property? Yes, that's uh, thank you. That's also a big question. Um, uh, I try and think of property in a deliberately capacious way. Um, <clears throat> Uh, uh, so I would define property for our purposes as a system of rules that govern access and use of some valued, let's call it a resource. Um, that could be land. Uh, land is the you know the traditional focus, but it could also be personal uh, personal property possessions. I'm working on a property a, a project in regards to personal possessions uh, right right now. Um, And I do that deliberately to push back against the, I think, overly prescriptive and narrow way in which property gets defined, um, uh, which we can call the ownership model. And that borrows from uh, Joseph Singer, the uh, the property scholar um, who uh, came out of critical legal studies, interestingly, and has written, I think, in some interesting ways in regards to Uh, to property, particularly in the in the U.S. context. Now, if we define property in that in that capacious way, then I think it takes us in some interesting directions. On the one hand, if property is just a system of rules that govern access and use uh, of something that's of value, then of course it's capable of multiple configurations. There's no particular means, no particular um, template as to how you organize that. So, so a commons, for example, in you know the village that I grew up in. 200 years ago, uh, that would be thought of as property in the sense that I've described it. It would allow people to organize collectively, uh, to come up with a system of rules that would make deci organize decisions as to who can put their cow on the on the uh, common or who can put the, you know, who gets to use which strip of land in order to grow wheat or to barley. So it's capable of multiple configurations. And I think we can we can think about multiple systems of rules that govern access um across across the globe uh, so a favela is organized in some ways um we can think about what we might call property rules at, at play uh, at play there they're not necessarily something that have been created by the state um but they nevertheless are 
depend upon some sort of collective uh, to make that possible. Um, so it's more than it's more than what we might call possession. You know, it's mine. I decide. Uh, there must be some collective that makes decisions in that regard. That can be a community. Uh, it could be a group of uh, people in an allotment in Berlin, uh, for example, or it could be uh, it could be uh, it could be the state making uh, deciding that I get to have fee simple title, so called, on the property that, or the land that I claim as my uh, as my own. So it's a system of rules. It's not then the thing itself. So the attempt is to move away from this idea of property as. Um, as the thing I have, you know, this sort of reified notion of property, which um, which even liberal lawyers will say is inaccurate, but nevertheless uh, speaks to, I think, the sort of dominant sort of ideology of, of, of property as 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 object rather than uh, rather than rules. Um, it's inherently relational, which I think is also important. It takes us to relationality, and relationality opens up, I think, a bunch of things. And you can take relationality in, in many, many ways. I take it in a fairly kind of straightforward way. It implies a relationship to the collective, maybe the state, maybe um, a, a, a group, uh, but it's also inherently relational vis-a-vis -vis others. So property is meaningful. A property rule is only meaningful relative to others. Um you know, if I lived on a desert island on my own, it wouldn't make any sense for me to have property rules because it's just me. It only makes sense relative to others. And again, those rules can be organized in many ways. So we could decide collectively that us three have uh, the right to to some shared uh, intellectual commons, which we're generating right now. Um, uh, it doesn't necessarily entail exclusion. It can also entail forms of uh, organized uh, inclusion. Uh, so it's inherently relational. It's capable of multiple configurations. It's uh, it's her inherently social. Um, I think also, if so, we get to relationality, and I think hopefully we can begin to expand that and think about the way in which it's it begins to to structure uh, social relations and 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 society in a uh, in in a in a broader sense. Um, uh, it's socially constitutive in an important sense because uh, it distributes distributes access, distributes who gets to have what, and then in more generalized terms. And I've tried to think this through in a piece in Antipode a couple of years ago. It also distributes vulnerabilities and privileges, um, uh, particularly when we start saying only you get to have control over something rather than something more collective. Uh, so property in that sense, particularly under liberal capitalism, distributes vulnerability uh, and at the same time distributes privilege. And we need to think about the way in which relative privilege depends upon relative vulnerability. So landlord-tenant relations, for example, are inherently relational in that sense. The landlord requires a tenant, the tenant requires a landlord, uh, but of course there's an asymmetry there that property makes possible in terms of the way it organizes rules uh, as regards to uh, to leases and uh, and um, rental, rental property. Um, so, it is also socially constituted, right? It's a, it it's partly constitutive of a set of social relations, uh, but at the same time, it's also socially constituted in the sense that it doesn't operate alone. Uh, law is not uh, doesn't exist in a vacuum. It's necessarily tied to uh, prevailing understandings and logics, many of which are racialized or gendered, uh, that imagine people differently in terms of the uh, their capacity, for example, to uh, uh, to uh, to engage with property rules. So this, you know, allows us to think and draw from scholarship in racial capitalism, for example, in some important ways. 
um it's 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 also because it's relational um it's it's also dynamic right if we imply a relation then we're implying something that's changing something that's 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 not given that's not static um and that then opens property to to questions of enactment and performativity and i've tried to think about property as as performative as an effect that's generated through a set of of of, of relationships and uh and affordances and and so on um so you know, private property, for example, is not static. It's always enacted and performed uh, through multiple forms of enactment at multiple multiple levels. Which, you know, if you follow that line, might allow for different performances. Property can be differently performed in, in I think, useful and interesting ways. And finally, it's also geographic. It also it's hard to think for me as a geographer. It's hard for me to think about those enactments and those relationships um, without thinking about the way in which what I would call spatiality as opposed to space. So so a social space is also entangled in productive of, constitutive of, or constituted through um, those those property enactments. Um, and you can see this particularly in relation to land, but not exclusively. So I think that's, that. I mean, I could go on, <laughs> but that's broadly the way I would try and I suppose think about, um, about, about property. Um, which I think is quite distinct from from um, what we might call the ownership model, um, which 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 is really the kind of conventional liberal way of of thinking, liberal capitalist way of thinking about property as exclusively private property, as inherently individual, uh, as uh, as tied to very particular values like efficiency, for example, um, as uh, uh, as um, entailing um uh, uh the the owner as uh, imagining the owner as singular this the owner has all the bundled of rights um uh the owner as set apart from the collective rather than as necessarily entangled in those collective relationships so that's the kind of orthodox way uh, uh i think um in, in which property is, is 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 understood and and also enacted um through all sorts of policies and practices planning for example more generally these are really important points and i'm uh, also looking forward to uh, going a bit deeper into the vulnerabilities that emerge from the exclusive nature of property but just to um, refine a bit uh, the conceptual language with which we work um, you just mentioned that in the dominant liberal western notion of property property is often thought to be that object no the house the yes. piece of land yeah. So in your relational thinking, geographical thinking about property, would you then have another term for the object itself to just differentiate what the dominant model calls property from what you call property? So if we think about the dominant model of property, yes, what is then the object? Uh, well, it's still the... I suppose it's still the object, um, but but it's not it's not the property itself. So so on the conventional model, you know, on the, or on the everyday kind of quotidian sense, uh, I own my house. Um, so the house or the land is is the object of of or is the property in and of itself. Um, so 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 it's already dead, inert. Um, of course, we can open land <laughs> to, to to something more dynamic, but that's not what's happening in that context. It's 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 the bounded parcel. It's the it's the cadastral map. It's you know, and cartography helps produce this. I think also. Uh, so there's a certain process of of kind of reification of of of, of fixity. You know, this is. Uh, 
Lefebvre wrote about this, um, uh, of course, in his social production of space, which I mentioned as uh, in, in regards to my kind of early biography, and I think that's that's clearly influential. So, so, so this isn't to this isn't to deny the importance of of the things of property, um, and I think that's actually. So I don't want to sort of abandon the 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 materiality that that property is 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 engaged in because that's part of the enactment and it's part of the way in which property uh, in many parts of the world actually works in the old days in the English common law uh, you know there were practices in which when you transferred land you transferred a, a piece of the dirt as it were uh, as well as you know the, the 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 title the rights that went with it so there's something about materiality that's 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 important uh, there as um, uh, uh, as well but it's it, I don't want to give the 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 resource if you will um, some sort of particular privilege in that relationship it's it it's thinking relationally, thinking dynamically, also thinking materially as well. Does that does that help? Yeah, definitely. I'd like to uh, add on to this um, conversation about the object uh, of property um, and ask you whether such things as rights uh, could also qualify as property. So I'm, I'm thinking here about um, a French scholar, a French sociologist, Robert Castel, who has thought about social rights as social property. So is that something that you would also accept within your approach? Is that something you've thought about or where would you, where would you delimit the 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 things that could qualify as objects um i i don't know that argument um so i i can't speak directly to it um but uh i think if we if we accept um a relational view of property and move away from a kind of reified understanding of property as a series of of objects, then um, then there are there's a universe of possibilities. I mean, we can imagine uh, a whole set of relationships that would be that would be at play um, uh, that take us take us beyond a kind of narrow reading. So so uh, so clearly um, the the land, as it were, that is the object of property in a conventional property relationship is meaningless without a set of rights uh, those rights are in some sense formalized and recognized so classically the private property right is the right to the right to exclude so it's the singular right of the private property owner that's the you know the classic ownership model but but if we if we open that up to uh, to a broader kind of understanding of uh, of let's say what land means or what land might mean um then i think um which 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 would include Quite, um, uh, without a doubt, a set of social rights. Uh, it would also include relationships to, um, uh, to, uh, for example, the ancestors. If you if you are an indigenous person, and I'm not necessarily saying that indigenous relations to land are property. That's something I, I would like to bracket. Um, uh, partly because the way property has been already kind of overdetermined by the ownership model. Um, then, uh, so that implies you know relationships to to the ancestors and relationship to uh, to that those that are yet to come uh, so that would imply rights and responsibilities and obligations 
uh, in a very in a very broad sense. So so I think yes, if we open property up in that hopefully more kind of uh, capacious way, then then it becomes useful and interesting to think about uh, a larger universe of 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 possibilities, political, ethical, uh, and legal that are entangled uh, in that. So picking up on on these vulnerabilities that you already indicated uh, in relation to property, um, your work draws um, a lot on this relationship uh, between precariousness in living conditions and property. And at the same time, you recently argued that, I'm quoting you here, it is precisely in the margins that law becomes conditional and creative offering us valuable lessons, unquote. So could you please elaborate on this and draw out the lessons that you consider valuable from these properties at the margins? That that uh, idea, I think, for me, came from the work of a South African uh, scholar, André van der Velt, Uh, who passed away a couple of years ago, who, uh, and South Africa is a very interesting property space, um, partly because of the post-apartheid uh, constitution, which changed the way in which property was was defined in some, some interesting ways. Um, And he made, I think, some some really important arguments. He he was a he was a property lawyer, so he you know he's writing to 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 to, to lawyers, and I try and read property lawyers, um, but not exclusively because otherwise you get in a rather dark space. But uh, um, uh, he he noted the way in which property law, uh, by its very nature, tends to focus on um, on what he called centrality, um, on what you might call the castle there's this trope of property every Eng the englishman's home is his castle and many other cultures have something similar this idea of of of, of private property is this redoubt this um this space of, of of defensiveness and security and so on uh so property doctrine because it tends to focus on the concerns of white men with property not surprisingly uh tends to replicate centrality it tends to just become interested in um the concerns of those who are already held up and privileged by property and the way property works. So property allocates social power. Uh, it creates the centrality that then property scholars and lawyers tend to focus on and fixate on because that's the empirical data basically of, of property law scholarship to some considerable extent. That then of course has some very particular, that's important because we need to understand how the machine works, but, but it also of course is, distorting it, it if you live in the center if you live in the castle property very easily appears as a space of certainty stability autonomy um uh, you you realize the benefits um quite clearly and and thus property becomes quite clearly to be beneficent and and productive um um If, if if that is your lived reality, property also appears as as inert, as monolithic, as like a castle, as as big and powerful. Um, uh, and and exceptions to that appear as exceptions, right? They appear as exceptions that prove the rule. 
There are homeless people outside my condominium. They must have failed rather than tracing the way in which property uh, property enactments actually produce houselessness. Um, and so 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 what Van, what Andre argued for is is uh, a conceptual shift. What happens if we take our direction not from simply the center, uh, but also from the margins? Now, we can and I've thought this through a little bit, we can think about the margins in a couple of senses. Um, and I maybe would think of two. The first is 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 property in uh, focusing on on the edges of property rather than the center or looking at spaces of formation or contestation or uncertainty uh, rather than just um, you know the workings of condominium law as it's supposed to, uh, to to happen. So, so trying to trying to zero in on particular moments, historical moments or geographic sites in which property is kind of open to analysis in a way that it's hard to do when you're just inside the 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 the, the property machine. Um, so, places, for example, like anti gentrification struggles, where 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 people are pushing back against uh, notions of highest and best use. Or uh, pushing back against planning and the way planning is organizing property through this lens of of land use and saying no, it's not just about land use. It's not just about setbacks. It's about justice, uh, or it's about indigenous relations to the land. So, so those sorts of spaces. Or and I've, this is why I'm so interested in it. Um, early modern English enclosure, seventeenth, sixteenth, seventeenth century enclosure, uh, land enclosure in in. In England, uh, when the Commons begins to be rolled back, um, but but in a not in in a very straightforward way, in a in a contested, highly conflictual, uh, conflictual way, um, uh, encroaching landowners start putting up enclosure fences and hedge breakers start tearing them down, uh, and those sites I think are are interesting because they can uh, they 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 can reveal the architecture of of property. Um, the ideological architecture, the way in which property is being made, enacted on the ground, and also the way in which space is being made and remade on the ground. This is something I've also tried to to write about, the way in which, for example, um, land surveying uh, and cartography are changing and forming that process at the same time. Those are things that are hard to do when one is just inside it, the machine. Um, so I think that's one kind of marginal site. The second marginal site is is an attention to those who have been made marginal or made precarious. That's the word I would use. Um, and that's a legal term, actually, uh, by the workings of of property, by the property precariat. And and this takes us to cities, of course, because most people in cities have become made precarious as it were by the workings of things like financialization and liberal capitalism and so on so most people now in many cities are renters they have a, a much more precarious relationship to property than they did before we know growing numbers of people are uh, are um, are houseless because of the workings of uh are in partly of 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 property systems so 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 the margins are actually in a sense the center they're <laughs> they're in a sense the majority rather than uh of course in which they're understood as exceptions they are they are not the exceptions the center is the exception in some interesting ways which i think is also important and of course indigenous people indigenous people in 
in settler societies have always been made precarious by the workings, legally precarious by the workings of uh, of property systems. Uh, and I mean precarious here in the sense of being placed in a relationship in which your access to, to land in particular is dependent upon the will of another who can revoke that relationship at any one time. Um, uh, so, so I think if th that's an important space, and that's why I've spent um, a lot of time learning from people or trying to learn from people in those spaces. That requires not just doing research on the precarious, but actually spending time with people in those spaces to understand the lived reality of of uh, uh, precariousness, property precariousness, and the way it unfolds, the way it's experienced, the way, for example, in which people's possessions. Uh, people who live live precariously, uh, people's personal property, which is the only property that you have. Uh, or sorry, that's the I'm reifying property already. That's the only object of property uh, that you have. Uh, if you don't have land, that's it's just your stuff. Um, but tracing the way in which people are constantly having their stuff taken away from them, uh, stolen, seized by by uh, legal legal actors, by the police, by vigilantes, and so on. Um, I think that space is really, really instructive because it also tells us how property relations work, right? So if we only stay in the center, we're not going to see the, the 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 work of exclusion in that direct sense. We're not going to see the way in in which social power becomes much more visceral and and visible. Uh, we're not going to see some of those spatial logics and spatial uh, dimensions. And it also we're not going to see the falsity of the promise, the liberal promise of, of property. Private property uh, benefits all, right? We all we all are brought under the umbrella of, of private property. We all are protected by private property. Clearly, we're not. We're differently situated. Um, that's the way it's supposed to work through that distribution of vulnerability and 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 privilege um racialized as well that 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 uh, property under liberal capitalism um, makes possible i guess this is also the particular perspective of a geographer that is so interesting about this take from the margins or on the margins um so maybe this is a good moment to turn a bit to more spatial questions and of course we also want to speak about your new book uh, territory new trajectories of law or in law it's called um and it just came out this year with routledge um and essentially connects questions of territory and property so I was interested in the subtitle. Can you specify for us what are these new trajectories? What's new about them? Why the word trajectories? Where does it lead us, the trajectory? That's a good question. Yeah. So the new trajectories in law, I didn't get to control that bit of the the subtitle. That's that's it's a series um that Routledge have put together um uh, of short, accessible, um, student-friendly texts. Um But of course, if you're a publisher, you can't say these are the old trajectories in law. You have to say they're the new trajectories in law. So <laughs> it's partly, I think, a marketing uh, strategy. But but um, uh, the and and what the book does is is it actually um, initially they wanted me to do a, a book on territory and law, 
uh, which I said was not going to work because I only have 100 pages and um, I only have so many years left in my life. So so I said I would talk about property. Um, so the book is really about, yes, you're right, territory and property, but I wasn't allowed to call it territory and property. So it's just called <laughs> territory. So it's a little confusing, but it's a new trajectory. Let's for my for. Uh, or it's a perhaps a useful trajectory. I think we can call it that. We don't have to be new all the time. We can also think more pragmatically about what works and what doesn't. Um, uh, it's a there's a trajectory to this in that I am trying to uh, speak to I suppose two audiences. One is uh, would be maybe people in say urbanists or urban scholars or uh, geographers or you know people. Uh, interested uh, or interested in law, perhaps, um, to uh, or, or who have some awareness that maybe law is of value or of utility and thinking about some of the questions they're interested in, to try and convince them that actually property, in the sense I've described it earlier on, uh, has some utility. It's a useful analytical tool uh, to think about um, the city and its dynamics or think about um, a set of questions that um, they might not otherwise think about. And so I try and unpack property and reveal its politics, its contingency and and, and its its significance to, to understanding a set of, you know, on the ground empirical questions that might be of interest to those scholars. And at the same time, it's also speaking to, to property scholars, um, many of whom don't think about spatiality or space, or if they do tend to think about space in a overly narrow, uh, from my, in my perspective, overly narrow uh, way of uh, of 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 a simple surface uh, or you know a distribution uh, without recognizing the spatiality um, that the social the spatial turn uh, insists upon, which very simply um, recognizes that um, there's a an there's an ontology to spatiality. We all are all spatial beings. We all live in and occupy and produce uh, space. Uh, there's also a recognition that space is itself. Uh, socially produced it's not a given it's something that that has uh has politics has uh history um uh, to it and at the same time uh, uh spatiality constitutes and shapes society so it's trying to kind of push this uh broader argument of of the importance of spatiality with a particular attention to territory so property scholars of course in land will know for obvious reasons that property is about boundaries, it's about spaces, uh, it's about exclusion and so on, but they won't perhaps go beyond beyond that. They don't, they, in my conversations with those scholars, they, they, ref, they, they're uncomfortable in going a little further than that, in part, I think, because the assumption is that to do so is to reify property. If we talk about property as a, about a space, then we have reified property and we've this goes back to Marcus's question. We've treated it as a, as an object, um, and we don't want to do that because we want to recognize the relationality to property, which is absolutely I'm fully in agreement to. But uh, my contribution would be to say that territory is also um, not a given. It's also uh, um, dynamic, socially produced, socially constitutive, um, and and the argument really is that territory is not just an outcome of a set of of property relations, it's also a, um, a a means through which property relations are are enforced, are imagined, are codified, are 
um, are practiced, uh, are, are become depoliticized. So there's a whole series of very simple arguments that I make about the the difference that that territory and territoriality, the the using territory to achieve a set of social goals, um, makes on the uh, on the ground. And I do that through a series of of concrete examples uh, around uh, enclosure, um, around the city, uh, around um, stand your ground laws, uh, um, uh, around um, racial uh, racialized colonial dispossession in British Columbia and so forth. In one of the chapters of the book, um, I think a very powerful chapter, you discuss how liberal notions of property and their territorialization have erased the relationships of indigenous communities with their land, um, uh, their ancestral land. So you also show how their claims have been delegitimized and how that has created the ideological basis for settler colonialism on what has been termed terra nullius, no? the idea that there were no claims to this land previously and that it was empty. So could you for us elaborate uh, on this topic of territory in relation to settler colonialism and indigenous relationships to land and how territory illuminates the ongoing contestations? Yeah, that's that's um it's a big it's a big point um so so certainly uh i have written on the ways in which spatial imaginaries are tied to uh settler um myths um and ideologies around uh terra nullius the idea of empty land or doctrine of discovery the idea of in indigenous relationship indigenous uh, people's relationship to land as 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 invalid or having no legal uh, legal status um what i what i do in the in the and there's a short chapter what i do in the in in the chapter in the book is is slightly different in that i i try and talk less about those um spatial imaginaries of of empty land and and more uh, a focus on the uh, on the practicalities the practical ways in which territory and territorialization are mobilized and weaponized by settlers colonial settlers on the ground in the actual processes of dispossession um, and so just to step back very quickly um a lot of my work has tried to kind of understand those practicalities you know rather than why or what are the consequences is it's 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 how how does this actually unfold how does this happen uh, how does a map or cartography shape the process of enclosure and in the same uh, vein i'm trying to understand the the way in which a particular territorial logics imaginaries and understandings in which territory and territory here i should make clear is understood um very simply as a as a as a bounded space over which access is regulated so territory here is understood in this particular sense as as a as a technology form for organizing relations of access to particular land which of course directly takes us to questions of property in the sense that i've described it uh, uh earlier um so so what i do in the in the book in this chapter and this is borrowing or drawing from some conversations i've had with a wonderful group of scholars i'm associated and have the privilege of being associated with um 
Uh, we call ourselves the Decommission Collective. Um, several of them indigenous uh, property lawyers, uh, people like Brenna Bandar and my uh, Sarah Hunt, who's indigenous um, uh, and a geographer, wonderful geographer, uh, as well as others. Um, we were trying to make sense of some testimony that um, this was a COVID project. Uh, so the testimony was online uh, from a commission in the early years of the 20th century called the McKenna McBride Commission, in which colonial officials traveled British Columbia uh, in an attempt at deciding what was called the Indian land question, which in this case meant allocating so-called reserves, land set aside, very small parcels of land set aside for indigenous people. But what indigenous people did when they came and gave testimony was they spoke not only to the reserves, but they spoke also to the ways in which their, their lands had been stolen from them by settlers. They talk about the practices that settlers were actually using on the ground. And this is a very powerful uh, body, a corpus of testimony that speaks, for my purposes, directly to the work of, of, of territory uh, as, a, as a vehicle for, for this process. And, and territory, let's remember, territory, if we derive its origin, comes both from the Latin terra, meaning earth, but also uh, the Latin terrere, meaning to terror, to terrorize, or to to frighten. So, so literally, territory is land from which others are to be frightened away, and and that notion of terror and fear and violence, corporeal and legal violence, is clearly evident in the uh, in the testimony. Um, settlers are threatening the use of of their trespass powers, which they actually have uh, under uh, settler land law. Uh, they're destroying homes, they're clearing space, they're, they're creating terra nullius uh, on the ground by destroying indigenous houses such that it becomes conceptually available for, for settlement. Um, it, it all, the chapter also talks about the way in which territory becomes a site for uh, for spatialized surveillance, for monitoring where people, indigenous people, should or should not go or where they're going. So on the ground, it creates this matrix of, of territorial control. Um, it talks also to the way in which uh, indigenous people experience this practice of settlers uh, carving out territorial slices of their land. Uh, as as creating a a, a a very direct sense of of confinement of of containment, um, one indigenous pe person uh, talks very powerfully in his testimony about the experience of being like in a barrel. Um, we keep bumping up against white men is literally what he says. Oh, that's the translation of what he says. Um, so that these new kind of geography, these new encounters, spatialized encounters um, made possible by those territorial logics held up, of course, by, by property law and property ideologies and practice. And at the same time, the way in which this also interestingly uh, this these territorial logics themselves, because they're territory, because they appear to be simply lines, facts on the ground, as it were, depoliticize this process. Um, insofar as the, uh, the 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 settlers are concerned and the colonial officials, we can't give your land back. No, of course we can't, because that land has already been taken. 
they, they are facts on the ground in the same way that that uh, settlers in the West Bank, the occupied territories of, of Palestine, also create facts on the ground through other logics of settler colonialism as well. So I think there's interesting uh, dynamics there that you can understand this story, of course, as a story of dispossession. You can understand it as a story of, of property, uh, but I think you can also understand it um, by bringing territory into the equation and the work that territory does and territorialized imaginaries and practices, I think adds, I would hope, add something to to the to the uh, to, to the analysis it also i think speaks to the way in which indigenous people are pushing back they talk about their own territorialized understandings of their relationships to the land and the way they've been effaced um as uh, as as well so that speaks to different of course epistemologies of 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 land relations and uh, and and spatiality again <laughs> What I found really fascinating about this chapter or the the whole book was that you also show all these attempts to to train indigenous people on how to actually apply and accept these territorialized rules through concepts such as trespass and the like, because that shows us so much that these rules or understandings of territory are not self-evident, but actually need to be learned and then can also be undone no? and contested. They can also be revised. Um, we we want to jump from this book um, a bit back in time to your earlier work, so specifically your research in the downtown east side of Vancouver, where you developed this notion of the right not to be excluded um, in conversation in part with C.B. McPherson. Um, and we'd like to ask you to explain this notion and perhaps, if you like, also offer some thoughts on how this right not to be excluded relate or maybe also doesn't relate to the more well-known right to the city. That was, yeah, that's a little, uh, I haven't come back to that. Maybe I maybe I should. It was a sort of a thought experiment, uh, I think, and it came from, It was there was a seminar on commons and commoning, um, uh, and uh, that um, I was reading. So C. B. McPherson, I was reading C. B. McPherson at the same time, and C. B. McPherson is is I think um, uh, an interesting scholar, Canadian scholar. He was a political economist um, who who was fascinated by property. Um, he wrote extensively on. Um, 17th century English property theory, but he also, in his later years, wrote more generally about about the politics and possibilities of of property. Um, he he was very interested in recognizing the um, the possibilities of property, uh, recognizing that property was like me capable of multiple meanings, pushing back against the way in which property had become overly confined, uh, overly bracketed. Um, he was a he was a Marxist and a liberal, <laughs> which is an interesting and powerful combination. Uh, he was a Marxist in the sense that you know the kind of English Marxist tradition, Tawney and others, uh, the political economy of land, commoning, and so on. Um, and he was a liberal in the way that Roberto Onga, let's say, a critical legal scholar, is a is 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 a liberal, not a not a narrow liberal, but a somebody who takes seriously notions of freedom and autonomy, but wants to open those up uh, and recognize um uh that um you know tawny famously talked about freedom for the pike is death for the minnow uh recognizing that that freedom is 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 not a given but has to be um recognized and thought about in in social context so um 
So we should all read more C.B. McPherson is what I'm trying to suggest. But but he he had a very short essay in which he he said, uh, OK, this is private property is this state property is that and common property is the right to not be excluded. And um, he didn't really take it much further than that. And I thought, well, that needs to be thought through a little bit. Um, but what he meant by this, I think, is is that um, is that we need something uh, practically, ethically, and something uh, that has some heft in order to counter the right to exclude. So the right to exclude is the conventional way in which property, aka private property, is understood. But if we recognize that property is not just private property, and we recognize that others are made vulnerable by the workings of, of private property, for example, then what is the what is the counter to that? And the counter to that uh, is the right to not be uh, excluded. And the right to not be excluded um uh which of course takes him to to his sort of marxist tradition to some extent um the right to not be excluded is not a right to be included it's not a right to to join the the castle or become part of the castle become part of you know the property owning uh democracy that that liberal theory and liberal capitalism uh, imagines rather rather it's 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 a right to not be excluded um so 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 it's so it's both it in some sense it's it's a it's a right against it's a negative negative right but what he also argued for is that it's a right to something um a right has to have some normative basis for it to have any any purchase of course um and, and so he argued that this this right it, it is a right insofar as it can be justified uh by the um by the um degree to which exclusion diminishes human flourishing and human possibility so if we accept that people have the right to human flourishing and human possibility um then then it follows that they they need the right to not be excluded under certain circumstances so that's broadly the way he pursued it um uh i i uh i pushed pushed it forward a little bit by partly thinking about questions of of uh of, of spatiality uh and thinking about you know because he didn't think about space at all of course he was very very abstract he was not very empirical either so so i try to think about this in particular context and to why i try and understand the degree to which we could imagine particular urban struggles uh in regards to uh, urban displacement and indigenous displacement the degree to which those might be thought of as uh the articulation of a right to not be excluded um and 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 thought about the degree to which this was also about the right to space the right to have some space the right to have space in which one can flourish we all need space by definition we all need uh this is the territory argument in part in the in the book we all need some room in which to to exist we need some space over which we have some degree of control it doesn't follow that it has to be private property uh, that makes that possible. Um, so, so bringing spatiality and territory into that equation, I think, uh, as well as thinking through the ways in which this entails practices and performances. Um, if it's a right, if it's a relationship, as he follow, as he argued, then it it has to be practiced, which takes us, you know, to things like the commoning rather than the commons um, debate, recognizing that commoning it has to be thought of as 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 practiced and enacted rather than a a unitary space, which I think is the problematic way sometimes that the commons is understood as a as a singular object rather than a a relationship. So so it allows me to think relationally about 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 commoning.
and and insofar as right to the city is concerned i mean yeah it's it's similar in one sense right i think lefebvre imagined right to the city as a collective right rather than an individual right um uh mcpherson actually thought about the right to not to be excluded as as as, as individual but but that individual right by definition has to be situated within some collective it can't sit alone it's it's it, it's Lefebvre was also interested in the right to the city. And of course, he imagined the city, not just in terms of the space of the city, but in terms of dynamics of urbanization. I suppose if I follow that line, then yes, I'd follow I'd follow Lefebvre. I I I would like to think of it as not something that's not simply confined to to urban space, um, however. Uh, and Lefebvre also talks about this as the right to 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 shape ourselves by shaping the city and and in that sense the right to not be excluded could include of course the right to to create to co-create a space to co-create um a set of resources of forms of governance that make that uh, make that possible um it's different i think in that lefebvre's view is 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 very lefebvrean it's much more broad and 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 uh, and all encompassing and i'm much more interested in property and property dynamics and lefebvre certainly wrote about property but but not in the in the more focused way in which i'm i'm interested in it um it is lefebvrean i think in a different way rather than the right to the city in in that lefebvre had made these very powerful arguments about space and power and spatiality uh, you know space space is a, is a product filled with the ide- with ideologies is one of the phrases that i like to like to use and in the same way we can think about the space of property as as as, as produced and shaped by uh, these ideologies so 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 it's lefevrian in impulse but i don't think it it neatly aligns to to right to the city i still don't quite know what right to the city is to be honest i think it's capable of multiple meanings it's also been misappropriated in some problematic ways as well but uh, so it's it's related but different i think so i have one follow up question and i understand the right to the city based on lefebvre's idea of the city as an oeuvre no as as yeah. the as a collective a product of of collective work and you might then also extend this to say well this is something that the social division of labor has produced and because the city the the city space is something produced by everyone um in in a collaborative manner you 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 cannot uh make sense and uh exactly state what piece of it was produced by whom and who has thus a right to the product of the, any singular piece but rather i think i i mean that's my interpretation also drawing on on i guess the work of margaret cohn who has also thought about from the solid solidarism movement now that um there is there is this idea there is a social property you know because it has been produced by everyone and thus it, there should be also a legitimate claim by everyone to this uh, collectively produced space and i think that's uh, something interesting about uh, the right to the city the way i read it and um, i wonder if that resonates with the right 
to not be excluded, which seems to make a different normative argument, you now based on, I think, what you call the human flourishing or the, the conditions for human flourishing. Yeah. Uh, that's that that's very very helpful thank you i hadn't i hadn't thought of it in that light um but the the idea of the 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 oeuvre is i think interesting um uh, and we can certainly connect that to debates around property uh particularly for example in regards to value um so so property value uh and the way value and we can think about this in the contemporary city um so property values are imagined as uh, as somehow the product of the property owner so um the value of my the house i'm sitting in right now has gone up massively over the past 10 20 years i've lived here i've changed some light bulbs i've i've cleaned my toilet um i have done very little to actually <laughs> increase the value of my home in fact if anything i've probably led to its deterioration yet uh, when I sell this house, all that value pretty much will go directly back to me. Um, so, so again, you know, the the all these individual decisions of individual owners are imagined as as by right the um, uh, 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 something that will accrue to the uh, to, to the to the property the property owner. But if we think about the ways in which um, struggles around uh, around rental housing around rents around financialization uh the berlin um socialization of uh of rental housing and so on um it'd be interesting to reflect on the degree to which those questions are also uh pushed back um you know the value clearly is is a social product it's nothing to do with me it's to do with with the the uh, the, uh, the, uh, the 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 collective um it's also predicated on on theft from others theft from the indigenous peoples for whom this land is their traditional territory so if we if we reframe that the question of value there i think then uh that becomes an interesting um property dimension to the to the point you're making uh, about the oeuvre so that's something i'd have to think about some more so um uh, maybe I have a question that allows us to think about a tiny bit more in this direction. Um, let's consider again the inequalities um, that property produces along the lines of class, race, indigeneity, but also others. So I'm speaking particularly about inequalities that liberal property, Western property regimes have produced and fortified and that are also very much reflected in our current access to land, to housing, particularly in inner cities. So that's one way to think about it. But now that we're speaking about Lefebvre, you also address the contestations, the possibilities of participation, um, uh, the struggles against gentrification, and also the significance of property at the margins. Um, can we take this a bit further and think more about possibilities for fundamental change towards justice that um, you might be seeing at the moment? Um, I... I can see uh, a few a few really productive possibilities. Um, uh, some of them conceptual and some of them material. I think these things have to go. They have to go together. This isn't just um, one or the uh, or the other. Um, in a material sense oh, also a conceptual sense now i shouldn't imagine these things are separate because because um clearly um 
struggle is 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 informed by uh, conceptions of justice uh, and and um, theorizations of of possibility and futurity. Um, I uh, I take uh, heart in the the struggles, the ongoing. They've been ongoing for a very long time. Uh, the ongoing struggles of what we might uh, from the margins again, from from the uh, the property precariat, those who are made precarious, who are now, of course, most of us <laughs> um, in in, uh, in under liberal capitalism, um, and the degree to which those struggles. Uh, begin to join up, begin to coalesce, begin to begin to connect. They don't always. The um, uh, so the Occupy movement, for example, um, uh, did not necessarily connect questions of land and wealth uh, with questions of um, indigenous dispossession and indigenous activists push back against that. So. But one can think about struggles for housing justice, which have which have really taken off. I mean, in some remarkable and profound ways, tenant unions existed. Uh, I mean, they've been around. They, we've had tenant unions and tenant organizing for a very long time. We've had rent strikes for a very a very long time, of course, in many in many places. But we're seeing a lot more of this. We're seeing struggles around um, around property tax, for example, uh, in certain cities and the way in which property tax has been used uh, to uh, in, a, in, a, in a discriminatory way, targeting racialized communities. Uh, there's some remarkable mobilization happening around that. There's remarkable movements uh, that are also connecting and joined, beginning to join up uh, um, around the, the bring together houseless people um, uh, the uh, indigenous uh, justice movement, indigenous land defense, is 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 uh, has has always existed. Of course, um, this isn't to say it's new, but but it's taken on a new urgency, uh, and it's brought with it a whole set of really important um, reconceptualizations, or at least insofar as settler society is concerned, reconceptualizations of of relationships to land, uh, which are tied, of course, to climate justice and so on. So, so there's a universe of possibilities that that um, has always existed, but has kind of begun to um, uh, take flight in some really interesting ways that I don't I don't remember happening um, ten or twenty years ago to the same to the same extent. So that really gives me some some optimism uh, for 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 possibility. Um, uh, and then at the same time, I think there's some sort of conceptual work that's happening, um, uh, which again is also happening in those housing justice movements. Let's be clear, this is not somehow disconnected, but but happening uh, maybe in a more self-conscious way. Uh, and and some of this has to do with, with work around racial capitalism, uh, connecting questions of uh, racial injustice, uh, chattel slavery, indigenous dispossession, and tying those to an understandings of the the ways in which uh, property forms have been shaped and continue to be shaped. So, kind of unpacking the genealogy of of property and property forms and property logics and recognizing uh, in ways that that we maybe didn't have the conceptual resources for. Uh, in the past, connecting those to to questions of of, of racialized dispossession, uh, I, I think that's that's really interesting. I think there's also something important, more generally, uh, around the kind of provincialization of of conceptions of property that we haven't really talked about. Uh, you know, we've been talking about Western liberal conceptions of 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 of, of property that indigenous 
um, indigenous justice movement, of course, has provincialized property in some important ways, but but recognizing the way in which property is understood and contested and imagined and available, you know, different possibilities exist. Uh, social function of property, for example, that 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 one can find in in many parts of Latin America or in other parts of the world. Uh, that has also, I think. That space, I think, is also something that we should be watching for and 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 learning from uh, as well. So, so I think there's a there's a constellation of possibilities that are that are at play there. At the same time, we know that liberal capitalism is incredibly powerful. Um, uh, we know that it's mutable. It's capable of change in ways that can accommodate some of these dynamics and change without actually changing the kind of foundational um, ideological precepts upon which. Uh, liberal capitalist conceptions of property um, are rest. So, so um, we have to be realistic at the same time. So, in relation to the uh, various struggles that you um, just mentioned, so can you reflect a little bit uh, for us? Which role do you see? For your own research in this, or maybe also more generally for urban researchers. Um, well, in terms of my my work, um, I'm I'm doing too many things at the same time, and I'm having too much fun. That's my that's my problem. Um, uh, <laughs> I so so I I I I'm not sure where my work will be in the next three or five or five years uh, i think it's going to be informed by the work i'm doing i'm doing now i'm doing more work around colonial dispossession and the logics the practical logics of colonial dispossession particularly in regards to um to land uh, certain uh, policies of of uh, that allow settlers to access land this is in conversation with brenna banda we're working on that um uh i'm also going to be trying to learn more um from um from precariously housed people um through community engaged research um uh, this is a project around uh, that i mentioned around people's possessions and the particular injustices that happen in those sorts of sorts of spaces so so i'm afraid i'm not very good at at planning where I'm going to be going in the next little while, because it really depends on the relationships that I have. If we're relational, then we have to be open to those relations um, um, because research is not a singular or shouldn't be a singular um, project. Um, it's also informed by the wonderful graduate students. I have the great, wonderful privilege of working with at the same time. In terms of the city, uh, you mentioned the city. I mean, my work has an urban dimension, but it's not unique to the city. Um, so so I think the city is clearly a crucial and important space for doing critical property research uh, or property research that's informed by by spatiality. I don't think it's it's a unique site, necessarily a unique site. I think we can debate that. Um, what it does, of course, is it amplifies things. It amplifies property relations. It amplifies um forms of uh some forms of 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 exclusion uh rents housing rents these sorts of things it it makes um it makes uh it amplifies the politics in some senses it makes possible housing justice movements um in, in, and we know that there are housing there are housing justice movements in rural settings as well we know indigenous struggles also happen in cities and outside um cities 
But I think it's also interesting to perhaps reflect on the degree to which cities are distinctive property spaces, whether the way in which property works in cities does have something distinctive. I'm not sure that it's unique, but something that is distinctive. I tried to kind of broach this in my Unsettling the City book um, from 2002, I think, uh, in which I tried to suggest, and this was again a thought experiment, that there's something distinctive about cities, particularly Western cities, in which they imagine themselves as sites of settlement, um, as sites in which property has been settled, has been resolved. Um, so maybe some of those sort of ideological assumptions about property become particularly cemented in cities in ways that they might not in on an indigenous reserve um, 200 miles away from a place like Vancouver, for example, although at the same time, we know that there are indigenous people struggling and contesting those spaces. So so I think in, in cities. So so I think one interesting question for me might be to to think through the ways in which the city makes a difference or conceptions of the city or of urbanism make a difference to the way in which property is understood, is imagined by uh, the way in which hegem hegemonic notions of property are, are, are enacted and the degree to which those are also contested. But that's that's an open question. How do you negotiate the what I would say the the bifurcated or the these these dual um, issues of relevance, um, making the research relevant on the one side to the academic community and on the other side making the research relevant also for for the struggles on the ground. So how how do you negotiate? How do you make sure that you serve the two? Well, I don't necessarily. Um, I'm I've I'm tenured and promoted and 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 so i don't need perhaps to the same degree that that a junior academic might be uh might require i don't necessarily uh feel that i have to feed the academic machine um in the way that perhaps i used to do when i was uh, a more precarious academic than than i than i am now um uh I I I I don't negotiate that relationship very well I suppose. Uh I mean I think increasingly there's there's work that um uh that I'd like to do or have done that that isn't going to have a direct um an immediate academic outcome. But at the same time um increasingly what I'm learning is that actually spending time in those sorts of spaces in learning from uh, people on the ground who are, for example, made precarious by the way in which their relation, their possessions are taken away, is actually incredibly generative. It's actually a really generative space um, uh, that one one can learn from uh, in really instructive and important ways that I can take back into the classroom and, yeah, maybe into the uh, into the academy. So, uh, so that's a bit of a dodge because th th now I'm I'm pointing to the ways in which those two relations, those two spaces are actually, um, you know, one can move between between those two spaces they're not always um mutually generative you know there are there are things that that happen in those spaces that that shouldn't be taken into the academy because they're not they they, they don't belong in the academy um uh they may harm pe people on the ground in in some important ways or they um or they're it's just simply not respectful to take those into into those sorts of spaces um and and i think one needs to 
to recognize that and learn from that as well. And I'm uh, that's a difficult thing to do, of course, for an academic, um, because you want to share, you want to um, you want to publish, uh, you want the glory that comes from an academic article. Um, but uh, at the same time, that's not always the right the right move. Thank you very much, Nick. Uh, this has been a really uh, inspiring conversation. Um, I want to just reiterate my thanks for clarifying so many conceptual underpinnings of property, but also for opening up all these new directions in which further property research can go and perhaps also opening up some questions for further iterations of this podcast. Well, you're very, you're very welcome. Um, uh, and it's a conversation that that lots of people are involved in and should be involved uh, involved in. This is not a singular project. This is a really uh, project for for incredible possibility. I tell my students who are interested in property, particularly from a critical lens, there's so much more to be done. So everything anything that one does is going to be new and creative and innovative. So so it's a really exciting um, uh, space politically and and analytically that is just open to just so much more possibility. Thanks to you for listening. For more information, visit our website urbanpolitical.podigy.io. Please subscribe and follow us on Twitter.